This reading can be found on page 1179 in the Church Bibles, and it's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. In the previous verses, Paul has been saying, as we have just been singing, how great is our God. And he continues, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray that God would ooh, let's pray that God would speak into our hearts this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, thank you that we're learning more and more what it is to have your joy in our hearts. And we come to you this morning again asking that you'd speak into our lives. Praying that you'd train us to be people of joy people who live life close to you. So please, Lord, take what I prepared and use it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, you won't know that we're going through this letter to the Philippians with one distinct perspective. We are joy prospectors. We're mining this letter to see what it could teach us about how to experience joy regardless of circumstances. And the reason this is a legitimate exercise in this letter is because the words joy and rejoice proliferate every single paragraph of a letter. It's the most common used word throughout this letter, which is surprising because it's written in circumstances which are far from joyous in our usual way of thinking. Paul is imprisoned. And in fact, in today's reading, I don't know if you picked it up, but he refers to two particular challenges. In verse 17 and 18, he acknowledges that physically he's very vulnerable, that he's exhausted, that he's weak. He describes himself as being poured out like a drink offering. And secondly, he refers to the frustration and the challenge of living out the Christian life in what he describes as a warped and crooked generation. Or in your translation, it was just read out, depraved generation. 
And so it raises two good questions, really. How can we be joyful, A, when you're feeling really weak and vulnerable, and secondly, when you're aware that the world all around you is sick? And I can't be the only one in this building today. You don't need many prompts for reminders that the world that we inhabit is sick. Uh, the newspapers are full of it and highlighting it as sick. You know, they talk about social media sites that glorify acts of self-harm, that egg their readers on along a suicidal path, that paint acts of violence as normal and to be applauded. Depravity and hatreds all around. It's really not difficult to think that we live in the middle of a warped and crooked generation, is it? I don't need to bang on about that. It's sort of a given. And to many, it encroaches right into our life, whether you like it or not. When you discover that a friend of yours or a family member is addicted to drugs, when you see the challenges of depression coming close, when a friend of yours is self-harming, etc., etc., how can we know joy in such a situation? And in this passage, even this short little passage, I think that Paul can teach us two things at least. One is not only how to cling on to the experience of joy, but secondly, how to shine like a star in the middle of a crooked and depraved generation. And we all know, we all know that stars shine brightest when the night is darkest. We all know that if you go into a jeweler shop, well, maybe you don't know, but let me tell you, if you go into a jeweler shop, I did once years ago, <laughs> They will, put, they will put a jewel against a dark background because it shines brighter, it looks better. And we're going to see that Paul holds out this hope that we are precisely commissioned by God to know joy in all circumstances and to shine and make a difference. So I hope we're ready for it. This is what we're going to learn this morning. And there are three simple points. And the first one is this. We're all invited to a workout. We're invited to a workout. I can see you look thrilled with that idea. <laughs> so let me tell you about a friend of mine called Chris. He doesn't live in Cambridge, and I don't think any of you know him. He did go to Queen's College in the days of yore, before the invention of mobile phones, laptops, and selfies, and emails, back in the day when people still spoke to one another, and they wrote letters, and they used telephone boxes within memory. Nowadays, he has a responsible job, and he can be found in his office most mornings, I think, between 8.30 and 9 o'clock. And the other day, I was staying with him, and I discovered that he has an early morning routine. And he sets his alarm very early, and he goes off to see his personal trainer at 7.15 a.m. for a workout. Now, I haven't liked to ask him what this involves because I can guess, and it sounds painful. But I asked myself, why would Chris, who's a sensible guy, submit himself to a workout early in the morning every day? And obviously, the reason he does it is to get fit, to be prepared for the rest of the day, and to set himself up for a good start, in not just every day, but cumulatively, the effect of this over years is, is even stronger. He works out, now I don't think Many of you will struggle with that idea um, as much as I do. 
that uh, many people have personal fitness trainers and many people try and get fit without fitness trainers. Now we, as followers of Christ, are invited by Paul to have a workout. And the first thing we're told to do at the workout, we need a workout to work out how your life has changed since you decided to follow Christ. Let me say that again because it's a key point. We need a workout to work out how your life has changed now that you follow Jesus Christ. And this is in verse 12, in case you think I'm making it up, I'm not. Therefore, dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that fear and trembling bit is really saying with earnestness, with intention, deliberately. Just to cover my bases, it's not work for your salvation. This is not a salvation by works idea. But it raises a question, it's a very good question. Have you stopped recently to work out the difference it is making to your life now that you are a Christ follower? Or to use his words, now that you're saved? Some years ago now, Terry Waite was released from captivity. He spent five years between 1987 and 1991 being captured by Hezbollah in Lebanon. Extraordinarily, he spent the first four years in solitary confinement, chained to a radiator. He didn't speak to anyone apart from occasionally saying yes or no to his guards. And when he was released, probably some of you can remember it, I, I think it was one of the most extraordinary speeches I've ever heard anyone make. On the tarmac of Lynham Airfield, he made this extraordinarily eloquent and gracious speech. But over the coming years, it took him years to adapt to the fact that he was now free. Well, you'd expect it to take a long time, wouldn't you? He, he writes that for many years, he couldn't have lunch or a meal with his family. It was just overwhelming to have company over a meal. So it, it took him many, many years before he was sufficiently adapted and adjusted to be able to do just the simple things of life. Life has to change. You have to learn to live in your new condition. I think um, back to my time I was at university, and for one year I lived on a house on the verge of Dartmoor. And the peculiarity of this house was that the ceilings in every room were about five foot 11. And um, I had to duck and walk with a kind of stoop in, in every single room of the house. And after a while, you adjusted to this. But the strange thing is that whatever house you went into, you still walked with a stoop. And you had to unlearn the habit. You had to learn now to walk free. It's not necessary to walk with a duck, as it were, ducking like that. Or the children of Israel, this is a better example still, really. The children of Israel in the Old Testament who lived in slavery for much of their lives, they experienced huge dollops of the workings of God. They experienced seeing the plagues happen. They experienced walking through the parting of the Red Sea. But they found that their old habits of life were very, very difficult to shed. 
they needed to work out what life in freedom would really be like. And we, individually, need to work it out if you're going to know the joy of the Lord wherever you are. Paul says it to the Corinthians, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, and the old has gone, and the new has come. Well, what's the new you like? And I think there are three thoughts in this section that we can allow ourselves to be captivated by, which if we do, it's like rubbing in the oil of joy every morning. It's like a joy restorer. It seems to me, it's almost like the enemy Satan has managed in many of our lives to do a work of identity theft. He's stolen your real identity. And part of my job this morning is to put it back again. So the first thought you can have, and it's all here in this passage, is the thought should strike you, and it should bring you joy. I am much loved. I am much loved. Where's that in this passage? Well, God loves you enough to save you, basically, to give his life for you. In just a few days' time, Valentine's Day is coming around. Husbands, notice. (laughs) Your wife will be expecting a Valentine's card. And it's crazy, really. You know, you go into these shops, and you know perfectly well it's a financial racket, and they're just bleeding you for money. And these soppy little cards. But for a fraction of a second, you see joy on someone's face. So, of course, you're going to send one. And, and the reason there's joy, even though we can interpret it perfectly well, the reason there's joy, because just for a fraction of a second, it dawns on you, someone loves me. Now, looking out, I can't read whether you do Valentine's cards or not. But anyway. And you're meant to feel joy when someone loves you. Why on earth wouldn't you? Or another illustration, because I don't think that one really hit the mark. We English are are nuts about dogs. And it's ridiculous, because why are we so nuts about dogs? Because we like the unmerited affection of a warm greeting. We know that a dog has no reason to like us apart from the next food bowl. But nevertheless, the wagging tail and warm greeting, we think, ah. Now that's all small fry, terribly small fry, compared to the fact that God, who is the maker of heaven and earth and the whole universe, knows you through and through and loves you. And nothing is going to shake his love for you. Nothing. And a Valentine's card is pathetic compared to God's love for you and me. And a hundred dogs wagging their tails are pathetic compared to God's love for you and for me. And we should enjoy it. It should bring joy in our hearts in any and every circumstance. God loves you. That's part of your and my new identity. Secondly, the new you is a work in progress. And God is in the new you. And there are two things. You see this in verse 13. God is at work in you. This must mean if God's at work in you and at work in me, you're not alone. It must mean whatever circumstance you're in, when it looks overwhelming and you can't understand it and it's so challenging, you're never going to have to face a day alone or a night alone. God is in you. He's with you. The maker of heaven and earth walks with you. Fear not. 
I'm with you. Or as Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel, I'm with you always to the ends of the age. Do you ever wake up in the morning and have a sort of moment of panic and think, I wonder how this day is going to work out. Things are pretty overwhelming around here. Well, C.S. Lewis put it like this. The real problem of a Christian life comes where people don't usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up every morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other stronger, quieter life come flooding in, and so on, all day. Standing back from all your natural fussing and fretting, coming in out of the wind. We can only do it for moments at first, but from those moments a new sort of life will be spreading through our system because now we're letting him work at the right part of us. It's the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface, and the dye or stain that soaks right through. Just stopping and remembering, I'm not on my own now. God's at work in me now. He's changing me little by little to become more like him in character. I don't know if you stop to think about that, but God does. He's at work in us to make us more and more and more like him. That's what really counts. Often we think what we produce really counts. Our productivity really counts. But actually, it's our character that he's shaping that really counts. And I know that progress is often painful and painfully slow. But all the same, progress is happening. One of the joys of being part of a fellowship over many, many years is you actually see progress in your own life and other people's lives, and we are allowed to change. It's what the Holy Spirit does in us. That's a cause of joy. It's a cause of hope. And thirdly, just in this first section of our identity, we now have a new purpose, don't we? Now that you're in Christ, God is at will, is at work in your will, and empowering you to live life according to his purpose. You know, before you became a follower of Christ, this thought never entered your head. How can I live to please God? That's a totally alien thought to the majority of the world. But now, it's the key thought of our lives because we live to please him. And it's a source of joy. I think I've referred before to a time when a young boy, aged about four or five, came into the room and um, he kind of walked towards his chair and he threw himself in a chair. And he was literally only aged four or five. And he sat down and he said, what is the point of life? (laughs) And you knew he must be repeating what his parents were saying. Well, now you have a point of life. The point of your life and my life is to put a smile on the face of God. And it's a richly rewarding point to our lives. Well, this is just the first part. Point one, how to put joy back in your life. Align yourself with your identity in Christ. Remind yourself what God has done for you. 
Okay, so that was the first thing, the workout, to work out how your life changes now you're a Christian. And here's the second thing, to root out something from your life. Much shorter, this section. We're told to root out two things, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. I don't suppose you know anyone who grumbles, do you? I had to listen to lots of podcasts to remind myself what grumbling sounds like. And I was told, as I listened to and read different articles, that I thought it was quite a good way of putting it, actually. We're negative by nature and conditioned by our culture. So what we do, often, is we excuse ourselves our mistakes and we accuse others for their mistakes. And it's true, that's a kind of way the world works. But you will have met the odd grumbler. You might occasionally have been the odd grumbler. Comes in many shapes and sizes, moaning. You know, you hear people who, who kind of they say things like this, if I had a different husband, I'd be happy. If I got married, I'd be happy. If I hadn't got married, I'd have been happy. If I had more children, I'd be happy. If my children would leave home, I'd be happy. And it goes on like that. You know, you know the type. And then there's a really infuriating type, the mustn't grumble brigade, who in the very essence of saying mustn't grumble have grumbled very effectively. Or the cynics who try and tell you, what's the use, why bother, it won't make any difference. Well, if you've ever read any of the scriptures, really, you discover that grumbling is the gangrene of the scriptures. It's a death watch beetle. It's a dry rot in the foundations of a community. The children of Israel, do you remember when Moses led them out of slavery? And you know, we've thought about it a bit this morning already. They, they were living in a terrible conditions in slavery. They were making bricks without straw. They were forced laborers. They, then they watched the plagues and the darkness and the gnats and the boils and the river turning to blood. And they were led out of Egypt. And then imagine it, you know, they were really pretty well catered for. They wore clothes that never wore out. They had food dropping out of the sky whenever they wanted it. And what did they do? They grumbled. They, they said, we've run out of cucumbers. They said, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. They sound really rather European. And uh, anyway, it's amazing that you, having been set free, you could be grumbling that life was better back in a hellhole. And the thing is, I don't need to spend at all long on this point, grumbling saps the will to live, doesn't it? It certainly sapped the will of God to try and lead these people. And it's a no-brainer. If you could exchange grumbling for gratitude, you would be so much more joyful. Paul had plenty he could have grumbled about, didn't he, writing his letter, but he didn't do it. So it's a simple point, easily made. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. So we'll move on to the third point. There's something we need to hold on to if we're gonna shine like a star in a depraved or warped and crooked universe. And it's written for us in verse 13. You will shine as you hold on to or hold out 
the word of life. You will shine as you hold on to or hold out the word of life. And it's a very, very profound but simple point. The amount that you and I shine is directly related, directly related to the impact that God's word is having on our life at any given moment. If you and I are disconnected from God's word, then our light will be totally dud. It will be like those bike lights that you see uh, where the batteries have run out. They're good for nothing. Be like the headlights of a car when the engine's turned off. There is a very simple direct link between the amount that we individually and together shine in God's crooked, well, God's world, which is now crooked and depraved. And it's absolutely related to how we're relating to God's word. And Paul's making a point, and he puts it in context. He says, you Philippians, make sure that you're living a life which is luminous, because if you do, then even while I'm imprisoned, I'll be full of joy. So there's a timely warning, I think, for us, just a little bit of an observation here, that we live in what I would describe in the Christian world, in a spirit-rich, word-poor generation. And this is a, a reversal of how things used to be. About 30 or 40 years ago, amongst churches like ours, the, the sort of big discovery, although it wasn't a new discovery, but the big place where the spotlight was, was have you received Holy Spirit power in your life? And it seemed to be the province of a few that they spoke in tongues, they had words of knowledge, they knew about prophecy, they knew about discernment of spirits, they knew about the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And, and they were the supercharged Christians. And yes, everything that they're talking about is not to be scorned. It's good and it's part of God's package. And it's wonderful. But today that seems to be the secure territory for many. And the alien territory is the hard graft of the word of God. Which is ironic because it's in the word of God that God reveals himself most reliably and without error. And today there's a very real danger, it seems to me, of just letting go of the word of God. So here are a few very simple questions to ask ourselves. How invested are we in God's word? And the idea is not to get through this book, but to let this book get through us. You know, in the scriptures we read, the psalmist will say, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, have you? Have I? When was the last time that we were about to do something and the Holy Spirit just quietly nudged us and said, hey, you don't want to do that. That's contrary to God's word. I think that should be a frequent thing. When was the last time that you drew strength from one of God's promises in his word because packed into this book the scriptures are hundreds and hundreds of promises and each one fizz with joy and fizz with hope 
And if you're connected to God's word, I'm sure it's a common experience that some promises pop into your mind at just the right moment. But if you're divorced from God's word, separated, you really don't know what you're missing. You know, I, I would wager that if you came forward for prayer on any given Sunday, which again would be a good thing, the person praying for you will share from God's word. You know, just simple verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you hope. Well, do you know that? You couldn't know. I couldn't know that God has good plans for me unless I'm connected with God's word. Or another one. And I like this because it connects with a situation of despair and a situation of hope. I've forgotten what happiness is. But this I bring to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that's Lamentations 3, 21 and 22. It's, it's there for all of us. But it's no use to any of us if we're not connected with it. But if you are connected with it, you'll never be without hope. If we're saturated in God's word, if we're conversant with it, if it's part of our lives, says Paul, it's like putting on special shoes, gospel shoes, and you're ready to share your faith. Wherever you are, whatever situation you're in, and you will be shining like a bright light. If something's come between you and me and God's word, no question anyone asks us is a nice question to receive because you're just ill-equipped. Now, friends, I'm only telling us what we know. I'm only repeating what Paul says to the Philippians. If we want to experience the joy of the Lord and shine and make a difference, this is how it's going to be done. It's going to be done through hard graft in private. We all want joy. All of us. You'd be nuts not to. The world wants joy, but they don't know where to look for it. We do know where to look for it. I love the fact, I love, absolutely love the fact that in the middle of the last coronation service, when the queen was bedecked with the crown jewels, literally, you know, they came out of the Tower of London, they were plonked on her head, and it, it, she's got splendor all around her. And in one hand, she's got an orb, and the other hand, she's got a scepter. And as I say, on, plonked on her head is the world's most famous expensive diamond. And there she is, and she's sitting enthroned. And at that point, the Archbishop of Canterbury came forward, and on a kind of cushion, presented her with a Bible and said to her, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world offers. Here is wisdom, here is the royal law, these are the lively oracles of God. Now you and I are most unlikely to have the crown jewels on our head, but you can have God's word in your hand and your heart. Think about it. And you and I can tell if we value God's word very, very simply, you can tell how much of a grip you have on God's word. Some uncomfortable questions, very easy. Do you set aside quality time every day to read it? To listen to it? it, it God's word has never been 
closer to all of us. So if you've got a mobile phone with a capability of having apps, there are countless apps that will deliver a reading to your phone every day. Secondly, do you let it influence your behavior? As you get older in life, it seems to me, fewer and fewer people have authority to speak into your life and tell you the truth. When you're younger and you're at school, you expect it to happen. When you're a bit older and still at home, your parents will still do it. But as you get older, there are very, very few people that actually can speak truth right to your heart. God's word will. Absolutely. It's there to teach us, to train us, and to rebuke us if necessary. So would you let it influence your behavior? When I was uh, at theological college, you had to go to chapel every day. And uh, I was curious because the chap next to me had his Bible with him and in the front was some scroll. And I asked him, Tim, can I just read what's written in the front of your Bible? I'm just curious. And he said, of course. And his mother had written, Tim, this book will keep you away from sin and sin will keep you away from this book. Annoying little phrase. But true, would you not just read God's word? Will you let it influence you? And I think the way to do this, a key tip is, when you finish your quiet time, before you get up, I mean, and walk away, you should just ask yourself a very simple question. So what? So what happens now? So what changes? So what's God been saying to me? And it's a failure to ask that question that I think leaves many of us in an arid place. I want to end with a little story. It's a kind of cautionary allegory, really, parable. I remember asking a friend of mine, just making conversation some years ago, apropos of not much, um, have you ever been in a situation of danger? Has your life ever been at risk? And my friend, who's in her 70s, said, oh, well, actually, now that you ask me, I think, yes, I can identify a time when my life was in danger. She said it was incredibly undramatic. She said I was actually at some kind of a party and we were on a boat. And we were all having a good time partying. And at some point, we looked out and we saw that our boat had just drifted a very long way from the shore. And we were being pulled out. And she said, I, I distinctly remember, even though it's years ago now, that we were in danger. We, it took a, a big struggle to get ourselves back to where we needed to be. And I want to combine that with a, another true, a true story. In 1987, there was a car ferry, some of you will remember it, called the Herald of Free Enterprise. And it tipped over on its side, just outside Zeebrugge Harbor, and actually 175 people died. One of the people who survived was a fellow called Andrew Parker. And he was a very tall man, and apparently what he did was he stretched himself out between a chair and a table, and these two thing, items were fixed. And he stretched himself out, and over 20 people were able to walk over his back and to be saved. 
And I want to put those two stories together and say, you know, I don't think there's any doubt about it. The society we live in is drifting, drifting pretty fast in an ungodly direction. And you and I are commissioned and equipped and tasked to be the ones that offer people a way to security, to stretch ourselves out and let people walk, if you like, over our back into God's company. And as we do what Paul recommends, you will know the presence of the Lord. I promise you, you will know the joy of the Lord. You will know the purpose he has for your life. But it starts with a workout. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. And thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, making us more like you. In an odd sort of way, we just want to give you permission, Lord, to speak to us afresh. And if you need to train us and rebuke us and discipline us, well, so be it. But we want to shine for you. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to know the joy of walking in partnership and friendship with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.